As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome along to the show. I'm Justin Briley, theology and apologetics editor for Premier, bringing you another edition of the programme that gives you the thought and theology of Tom Wright in a very accessible podcast form. Uh, it's brought to you in partnership with SBCK and NT Wright Online. And we're going to be looking at questions about the Old Testament on today's programme. Now, we're releasing this in the run-up to Christmas, so a very happy Christmas to you, wherever you find yourself. Uh, and there is a special Christmas video that we've just recently released of Tom answering a question on whether we can trust the stories of the birth narratives of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. So look out for that over the askntwright.com website. And if you're not subscribed to the newsletter for the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast, then uh, do get yourself subscribed there at askntwright.com because then you get all this stuff sent straight to your inbox and you won't miss a thing. Plus you get all the extra bonus content uh, that goes to newsletter subscribers. Got some exciting things to tell you about. Firstly, this show has been going for over a year and we've never asked you for a penny. But if you would like to support the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast and help us continue this programming strong into 2020 well there'll be an opportunity from the next edition of the podcast i'm just giving you uh, a warning about it now though because uh, we'll be making it possible to give and to support the podcast and as a thank you and this is around new year that we'll be launching this uh, we'll be making available the ask nt write anything ebook yes that's right we have an ebook from the show in which tom responds to 12 tough questions on things like biblical inerrancy atonement life after death the return of christ female ministry and much more so that's something exclusive you'll get if you feel able to support the show for any amount um so uh, i'll tell you more about that on next week's program because that's when we're going to be making that possible to to do that but i'll also like to tell you about a very important date in 2020 i want you to save this date ring fence it in your diary saturday the 9th of may in london why because nt Wright is going to be at unbelievable the conference in london yes tom has managed to make some space in his diary and will be joining me as our key speaker at this year's london conference uh, if you love theology if you're interested in apologetics you'll love coming along to this year's unbelievable conference as i say saturday the 9th of may and as part of that we will be doing an ask nt Wright live audience episode so you'll want to be part of that I'm sure. We don't have anywhere to send you to book in yet, but do ring fence it in your diary Saturday the 9th of May. That's all from me by way of housekeeping. Let's get into today's show. 
Welcome back to the program. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the Old Testament today, Tom. Um, now, obviously, your speciality is the new, not the old necessarily. But I think you've got a few things to say <laughs> about the Old Testament as well. Um, lots of these questions are actually, uh, and the ones that most commonly seem to come up um, regarding the Old Testament, are either to do with the, the way God is portrayed in the Old Testament. And we've done a podcast on that. Um, if people have questions on that, I, I do recommend going back in the archive to, to look that one up um, but, but also a, a common theme is the historicity of mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Um, people who say it feels like we've got this quite historical grounding for the New Testament and you've done a lot of work in that yourself. But the Old Testament, well, that's just that much further away and just much harder to, to get behind and so on. Um, so I'm going to bring a, a variety here. Um, firstly, um, questions on one specific book, the book of Daniel. Uh, And I had about three people actually send Mm -hmm. questions in on this. So I'll I'll read all three. Um, Alex in Kent says, Bart Ehrman said that modern biblical scholars say the book of Daniel was not written in the 6th century BCE by a Hebrew prophet named Daniel, but much later, chapters 7 to 12, around the time of the Maccabean revolt in the 160s CE. How would you respond to this? Spencer in uh, Mead, Buffalo, New York, says, what do you make of Porphyry's attack on the historicity of the book of Daniel? Again, mentions Bart Ehrman asserts that his view is widely accepted by contemporary historians. To what extent is Porphyry's argument credible? And if it's true, what would be the implications for Christianity? And finally, Kevin in Donegal, was Daniel a prophet in the 6th century or a historian in the second? So that's a nice summarised way of (laughs) asking the previous two questions. Uh, So, yes, I, I think anyone who starts to look into the um you know history of the old testament and specifically books like daniel will soon run up against um commentaries and uh, and historians who say no this this was written a lot later than it's presented as in the book um the mm-hmm. book of daniel um so yeah general responses to this and perhaps to some of the specifics of these questions okay yeah i mean th- this is obviously a very well-known area mm-hmm. i am not myself uh, an old testament scholar primarily i am not a daniel specialist primarily though i've done a lot with daniel because mm-hmm. obviously um from all we know about jesus jesus was certainly retrieving um the, the book of daniel especially i think chapter seven and nine and chapter two as well that's another story um so inevitably one bumps one nose, one's nose up against it. And Daniel is residually odd because it's in two languages. It switches from Hebrew into Aramaic mm-hmm. in chapter 2, and then it switches back again after chapter 7. And that's odd because um, that doesn't usually happen <laughs> in the Old Testament. But it's also especially odd because that is not the natural division of the book. Mm-hmm. You might have thought if there was to be a division at the end of chapter 6, where we finish these great stories about Daniel and his friends in the mm-hmm. in the, 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 the pagan court, and we start in these extraordinary visions. Mm-hmm. So that there's all sorts of things going on there. Mm-hmm. And I do want to say, as we've said in a previous podcast, what I believe about inspiration is that we have the Bible God wanted us to have. Mm. And that doesn't mean that there were no editors involved. It means that any editorial process, any bringing together of texts, any putting stuff together later is likewise under the guiding control of God's spirit. I have no problem about that right. at all. And I think part of the difficulty that people have had is because they have a theory of inspiration that Uh, demands that there was this person who got zapped by God, wrote the whole thing, and that's the end of the story. And we've had it perfectly preserved from Uh, time Exactly, exactly. And 
And I mean, there, there, is, there is a sort of a secondary or tertiary doctrine of the preservation of Scripture that God wanted us to have this book and so made sure we did get it. Um, but that too seems to be puzzling because the discovery of manuscripts, particularly in the 19th century, brought all sorts of things to light, which, which have been, I think, a real help and a blessing, which then implies, well, the people before the 19th century didn't have that. And mm. well, okay, if that's how it mm. was, that's how it was. And it's not my business to question God's providence in that. Having said that, um, it, it's very interesting that there's a passage in Ezekiel which talks about um, uh, Noah, Daniel, and Job as being the righteous men. Mm. Um, when did Ezekiel say that? And he, clearly he knew about Daniel. Yes. Um, did he think that um, Job was a real character? Mm. Did he think mm -hmm. that Daniel was already the writer of all of this? We just don't know. But clearly there there seems to be historical evidence for a Daniel figure in Babylon in the time of the exile. And this Daniel figure, rather like Joseph in the book of Genesis, mm. was kind of good at dreams, mm. um, good at visions. Um, I'm reminded of Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat when somebody says, I know of a bloke in jail who is hot on dreams. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. And, and da so, so that's the vision of Daniel. But then as you read on in the book of Daniel, there are these extraordinary passages um, from chapter 7 onwards, though already there in chapter 2, the king's mm. dream about mm. the statue with the different metals and so on, which are seemingly about the rise and fall of great global empires. And then God is going to do something quite different and quite new. And the way that plays out in Daniel 8 and then in Daniel 10 and 11 particularly looks as though it's being written, interpreted by somebody, yes, in what we would call the early 2nd century BC. Some bits of it seem to relate very directly to the movement of kings and armies mm. and so on at the time of what we call the Maccabean crisis. And, do you know, I have no problem with that at all, just like I don't really have any problem with somebody saying that somebody has edited the book of Jeremiah, taken these disparate oracles and put them together so that the Septuagint of the book of Jeremiah may actually reflect an earlier mm. version to what we find in the Hebrew, which is puzzling. But mm. again, it really doesn't bother me. We are to wrestle with these books as the holes that we now have. Mm. And I think particularly it is as though with Jesus at the middle of the Christian story, we look forwards and we look backwards from that point, and we say that the person that Jesus was and the vocation to which he was called was shaped by this great stream of writing and praying and visions mm. – which have come together in all sorts of ways. And the idea in a rather abstract fashion that we should say, this is either inspired or not. And if it was inspired, it must mean that somebody called Daniel in the 6th century wrote it all down exactly as we've got it. Well, sorry, I just don't think that's mm. a necessary part of inspiration. Jesus clearly knew the book of Daniel extremely well and was plugged into mm. it. In a sense, that's good enough for me. In a sense... It's also a way of saying Jesus lived in the world which was shaped by the exile in Babylon and memories of that, and in a world for whom that exilic shaping had come into sharp focus at the time of the Maccabean crisis. Those are really, really important in order to understand how a first century Jew like Jesus of Nazareth would be responding prayerfully mm. and wisely and um, to, to his calling from God. So I, I, 
I'm not bothered by what right. Bart Ehrman or Porphyry or anyone else says well, about it. Well, well, we'll come back to the more general yeah. issues okay. of, of the historicity because I've got, I've got another one coming up, <clears throat> which is someone who's, who really feels like they're going through a, a crisis of faith, really, because of it. But here's another one. And you mentioned him already, the Book of Job. Hmm. And the, the question from Stephen in Beaverton is simply, do you believe the Book of Job is a true story? Um, now, I suppose you could interpret that in different ways. Good. But um, I think what Stephen's getting at is, is it historically yeah, what yeah. happened? Because obviously yeah. it's, it's purported, I believe, to be one of the oldest pieces of writing in Could the be. Old Testament. Yes. I, I don't know um, that, but it might well be. Yes. And obviously some people take it as essentially detailing something that, that really happened to a person called Job. And others take it as more a, a sort of wisdom literature, sure. that, that it is a, sure. a, uh, a an allegory or a, a, a parable of its yeah. time yeah. of a man called Job coming to terms with the problem of suffering right. uh, in the face right. of, a, of, right. of God. Um, so for you, does it matter at this point whether this really did happen to someone called Job or whether it's a, a, a story that was written down for the wisdom it gives us? I, I'm inclined to say that it does matter that it wasn't because it is so stylized with the three comforters making their speeches mm-hmm. and Job responding and all that. And then at the end, Job gets stuff back again, etc. It looks like um, whether you call it a, a piece of wisdom literature, I mean, I suppose it is, but it looks like uh, a perfectly good comprehensible narrative framework for expressing the quintessence of the ongoing so-called problem of evil. Mm. As to whether it's a true story, I want to say, is the parable of the prodigal son a true story? Mm. And I want to say, absolutely, yes, it is. Did it happen? No. Um uh, and so the different levels of true story, mm. because I know that that can then be slippery. People then yes. say, oh, well, Jesus, Jesus was just another story. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. The, 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 the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that is rather like right. the parable okay. of the prodigal. And I want to say, no, actually, that actually happened. And I think Luke intends us to think that. And so it's then about this complicated thing of authorial intent. Mm. Um, but I, I don't think it, it matters at all um, that, that Job should be historical. And I think that anxiety as to whether it was and I would say something similar about the book of Jonah though I think Jonah probably does have a a strong historical core um, that I think the anxiety as to whether it's historical or not comes from a period particularly in the 18th century which is sort of we we, we in the western world have got stuck there where the, 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 the enlightenment critique of biblical Christianity was very much um, you know, it's either historical or it's all rubbish. Mm. Um, and so we will attack the history and will undermine your mm. faith. Mm. And I want to say the Old Testament is full of many different literary genres. Um, classically, when the Psalms say that God has smoke coming out of his nostrils, I don't think it actually means he has literal right. smoke yes. coming out, etc., yeah. etc. Et and so we need to lighten up about that. Um, Job is one of the most extraordinary books. I don't claim to understand it all, but um, every time I read it, I am in awe of this amazing vision of um, human tragedy and the the still puzzling mm. power and love of God. Mm. Because it, 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 the fact that there's a sort of happy ending doesn't actually mean that it's a happy book. If, if I may press you on this, though, yeah, and, and this sure. will take us, to, I think, to partly to Matthew's question. Um, I suppose it's a question of how far you take that in the Old Testament. And if someone starts to tell you, well, we can assume that all of the Exodus accounts are really just later inventions by people trying to make sense of their history, all the patriarchs, you know, Mm -hmm. in Genesis and so on, all of that's really you can't there's really no history to it. I mean, 
at that point it feels like you're taking away some fairly foundational parts of the yeah. story yeah and, not, uh, and of course know. the thing there speaking as a historian is that if we had um substantial records from egypt from um canaan etc at the time that we could compare things with then we would be on more secure ground we don't mm, mm. um and again it's not my professional field but my understanding is that a vast amount of what we read in the Old Testament as history, let's say start, say starting with Abraham, just to make mm. life a little less complicated, <laughs> um, uh, we do not have other sources that can tell us about this. Whereas in the New Testament, we have a lot of sure. comparative material. We've got Josephus, we've got Roman historians, etc., mm. etc. Et and even though they don't tell us about the specifics concerning Jesus, what we find in the Gospels about Jesus makes sense within the mm. world of first yeah. century Judaism. Um, whereas we don't have a world we can construct of, say, second millennium BC mm. um, Middle East within which we can say that either Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fit or they don't fit. Insofar as we do the world of ancient Hittite treaties mm. or whatever it is, then, yeah, there's a lot of stuff which, yes, this this makes considerable yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, I, I, so, suppose, I suppose it, for a lot of people it's it's having to contempt themselves with the fact that we can't literally get back there we we sort of and so to some extent you have to satisfy yourself with the fact that this is the story as received and as that as you would say the story god wants us to to know and and i think um it's interesting that this was a big worry in the 18th century and uh that up until the 18th century western culture had looked back at the greek and roman classics and thought uh, we belong in that world it is our world etc etc and suddenly the rise of what called itself historical consciousness with people like david hume and edward gibbon in the middle of the 18th century made people think oh dear we thought that was our world and we were in touch with them and now they're gone and it's Mm. all rather remote and it was to solve that 18th century problem that people like David Friedrich Strauss talked about myth that actually those stories are about timeless myth and we can plug into the myth and then it doesn't matter whether this stuff happened Mm. or not that was a way of solving an 18th century problem and I just think and my new book is about this Mm. partly um, we've got too stuck in the 18th century and we need again to lighten up Um, and uh, of course it looks as though somebody probably at the time of the Babylonian exile has done a lot of editing. Mm. You're away from the temple, you're away from the land, you're stuck there, but you've got trained scribes Mm. who are studying the scriptures and they've got these different scrolls. It looks as though quite a lot was edited then. Mm. Does that mean it was made up from scratch then? Of course not. You know, ultimately, if you go that route, you would have Martin Luther be the author of the letter to the Galatians because yeah. it was so important yeah. for him in the 16th yeah. century. But no, actually, he's retrieving something much older. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with SBCK, the UK publisher of Tom's Material, and two new books you may be interested in, The New Testament in Its World, An Introduction to the History, Literature and Theology of the First Christians, in which N.T. Wright and Mike Bird provide a thorough overview of the New Testament for students, church leaders and indeed everyday Christians. And another brand new book from Tom, History and Eschatology, Jesus and the Promise of Natural Theology. It's the book version of Tom's Gifford Lectures, of which Miroslav Volf said, a creative and arresting contribution to natural theology. This book argues for the plausible of the Christian vision and the relation between God and the world by taking seriously the history 
of Jesus Christ. Both books available at sbckpublishing.co.uk. Just search for N.T. Wright. Well, let's come to Matthew in Louisiana's question. It's it's rather long because he tells mm-hmm. something of his mm-hmm. own background um, as someone who is sort of very into apologetics and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He finds that very helpful to him when when trying to you know think through his faith. But um, he started to really go through the Old Testament, and he says he's run into a big problem um, because so many of the sources he's coming across online and so on are very skeptical of the historical background of, of lots of parts of the old testament and so just to read some some parts of his question here he asks were genesis exodus etc a collection of hebrew myths stitched together from different sources during the time of the babylonian captivity or later what about archaeological finds showing that a certain sect of hebrews believed jehovah had a wife and worshipped her as his equal and he goes on to say, I couldn't turn the sceptical part of my brain off. And as I ventured online for answers, I kept encountering these questions and more, all casting doubt on the validity of the Old Testament narratives. But there's such a dearth of apologetics in this area that I couldn't calm my scepticism. Everyone knows the reasons to believe Jesus existed, died and rose again. But if Moses was a myth, if Abraham and Isaac were myths, doesn't it all fall apart? And yet, thanks be to God, I haven't entirely lost my faith. I've witnessed the supernatural too many times to not believe in anything. But... This stumbling block has hindered me from reading the Bible, from having a prayer life and from worship for nearly a year. Mm. I miss God in my life. I look at my Bible. I want to read it, but I'm afraid Mm. of losing Mm -hmm. my belief. Wow. 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 I would love to sit down with this uh, dear person and actually work through some of this stuff. And I would say, for goodness sake, don't trust Wikipedia. (laughs) You know, I appreciate that the internet does give us instant access to all kinds of things which before Mm. you wouldn't have had access to including this podcast (laughs) including this podcast precisely precisely it's a great gift but there's a lot of rubbish out there and particularly a lot of skeptics have muscled in and said and put stuff up there so you can't believe this you shouldn't believe that and i want to say actually there's a lot of good stuff on this Mm. it's not my field Mm. but i would just instance the work of somebody like um tremper longman in in california or john walton at wheaton Mm. college um there are many other contemporary old testament hebrew bible scholars john goldingay who is my collaborator on this bible Mm. for everyone project um And uh, if you look around among the serious believing scholars in North America um, and uh, and in Britain, Mm. then you'll find lots of people who have faced these questions for years Mm. and are not phased by them and are are quite happy to say, um, yes, there's this, yes, there's that. And, And, you know, it doesn't matter if things were edited later. A great many things were edited later. When that book of mine finally came out uh, a, week, and eschatology, uh, a, week, yes. a week or two ago, yeah. um, uh, that both is and isn't the lectures that I gave 18 <laughs> months before sure. because I had to work on editing yeah. it and mm. people said to me, oh, mm. if you're going to say that, you need to deal with this and so on. So that is much longer than the original yeah. lectures and I hope none the worse for that. I hope the better for that. Um, and I think the vision that we have, say, of the Pentateuch, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I see that as a very, very ancient set of documents which have been edited into this amazing artistic form where Leviticus, which seems so strange for us moderns, sits right in the middle with the Day of Atonement right in the middle of that. This is an astonishing work of art as a whole Mm. and is all to do with the desire of the Creator God to live in the midst of his people and what has to happen if that's going to be a reality and 
I really don't mind if that was already an artistic idea in the mind of Moses um, mm. or if that was something which somebody later has put together prayerfully, wisely, humbly out of the traditions that they had received. Um, or take the court history of, of David and Solomon. A lot of that stuff, many historians will say quite Honestly, this is so sharp and so vivid that either somebody has invented the modern novel <laughs> 3,000 years early or this really does take us back to yeah. some fairly rough stuff that was going on yeah. back then and so on and so on and so on. So that um, uh, I would encourage this um, good friend uh, to look at the good Christian scholars from various traditions who have worked over this and don't trust what you find online. Right. And, and and I suppose in that sense as well, the problem sometimes is if people have been given a picture of what Scripture is, and this applies to the New Testament as much yeah, as the Old, which, and it has to fit some kind of very narrow, modern version of what counts as historical biography, and then they're given some evidence that it, the people who wrote it down had different categories that they yeah, yeah, were yeah, interested yeah, yeah. in writing in. And and sometimes it's just simply about adjusting our expectations sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And our expectations, again, sorry to sound like a crack record, <laughs> our expectations come to us largely from the 18th century, yes. from this either or, that either it's all sort of true. In fact, you see, even when you say what counts for a modern biography, but actually having written a biography of Paul, um, but having read a lot of biographies, um, a biographer, like everybody else, has to select and arrange. Yes. A biography is not the same as a total transcript of everything this person exactly. said, as a video camera that was accompanying mm. them, mm. you know, like a drone throughout their lives. That's not what makes a yeah. biography. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's move on to one or two other questions that are related to the Old Testament. Um, a few people have asked this. Um, someone I've wanted to get on my, my un unbelievable show, actually, um, Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, his book is called oh, yeah. the, the Unseen Realm. Um, and people asking, what's your take on it? For instance, Scott in St. Louis um, asks, um, is it St. Louis or St. Louis? I never can pronounce Louis, it. Think, yeah, Louis yeah. Um, says, um, what is Dr. Wright's take on the work around the divine council and the spiritual realm as set out by Michael Heiser? Now, I, I think you haven't actually had a chance to properly read I, I haven't. Book. I haven't read um, Heiser's book, but I've, I've met people who have been very enthusiastic about it and have talked to me about it, and I've just scanned and skimmed it to, to, to see. Um, and Heiser takes off from this passage in Psalm 82, which he says was his moment of great revelation, mm. which says, God stands in the council of the gods. So it's Elohim standing in the council of the Elohim. Who are these gods? Mm. And then he gives judgment, and he says, you're supposed to be gods, but actually I want you to do justice and, and defend the poor and the widow, etc., etc." And it is as though, in that particular psalm at least, but also in other passages in the Old Testament, like in the beginning of Job, or like in the vision of Micaiah ben Imlach in the end of um, First Kings, it's as though those who in the ancient world are seeing into the very council chamber of God see different characters there. And are they what we would call spiritual or are they what we would call um, sociopolitical? Are these right. leaders of nations or whatever? Mm. And I think, as with Paul's notion of principalities and powers, they seem to be rather shadowy and possibly both of those things. Mm. And again, we come with our modern categories. It must either be, quote, spiritual or supernatural, or it must be natural. Let's get rid of this either or. <laughs> God's world is rich, dense, complex, multi-layered. 
the more I live as a pastor and hear people's stories of what's happened in their lives, the more I'm aware of the multidimensionality of life. And it's funny, most people in the modern world can go for a long time without talking about weird, uncanny, strange things that happen. But if you get in on the edge of a conversation like that in a pub or a football changing room or whatever, suddenly you'll find people say, oh, that's interesting. My aunt said that a couple of years ago Mm. she hadn't... all sorts of things come out, which because we don't have categories for, we hear the story and then I can't cope with that. Mm. So put it in a box. In the Bible, it's not in a box. It's out there in the open. Um, uh, Colossians 1. In him, God created all things in heaven and earth, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. They're all created. in. in and th- you know, Paul assumes that there are hierarchies and levels and that these overlap with what we think of as human hierarchies, that when you give somebody authority, when you elect somebody to parliament or when you make them leader of a, an army or something, you are actually giving them a responsibility which puts them in touch with created but non-human intelligences which God wants to be acting wisely and God will hold them uh, accountable for whether mm. they act wisely mm. or not. So I haven't read Heiser. I don't know what he does with this. What I would say is this. The category of the supernatural is residually unhelpful because, as I've said before, we tend to think mm. in terms of supernatural up there, natural down here, and occasionally supernatural does Dives stuff. Yes. That is simply not a biblical way of looking at how stuff happens in the real world. Great. Well, maybe one day we'll be able to bring you together and have a proper That'd conversation on it. Um, and maybe by then I've read the book. That's <laughs> it. Um, final question for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex in Dallas, Texas, says... Uh, Jesus seems to clearly contradict the Old Testament law. What does he mean when he says not one jot will pass away and he didn't come to abolish it but to fulfill the law? Okay. Again, we tend to think in terms of it's either all true and all still relevant or it's none of it true. And I've heard that there are some people in America these days who are saying that in order to be good Christians we must just abolish the Old Testament and forget it. I mean, mm. the, uh, how on earth one could say that, I'm honestly not sure. But um, I'm going to be doing a conversation fairly soon in a big American church, and apparently this is one of the questions that's going right. to come up. Um, and uh, again, this comes very clear when you think of the story. Actually, I would prefer to approach this question via Paul, via Galatians 3, mm. where Paul talks about the law, and he says that the law is not against the promises of God, but the law was a good gift for a good but time-limited purpose. And that when that time-limited purpose is done, the law is set aside, not because it was a bad thing or a stupid thing. Many Christians have said, oh, the law, you know, that's Mm. all judgmental. We've got to get rid of that. No, that's not what it is at all. Think of how the story from Abraham through to the ultimate new creation really works. The law is given, Paul says, from Moses to the Messiah to keep the chosen people from, as it were, going bad until the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah is Israel in person, as well as being the living God in person. Mm. And now all of that keeping Israel sorted out ahead of time business has been done. So I use the illustration, which works just as well for the Gospels, of a booster rocket on a space flight. Mm. The the booster rocket gets the spacecraft out of Earth's atmosphere. When it gets up into deep space, 
somebody presses a button somewhere and the booster falls away, not because it was a stupid thing and we Mm. wish we could have done without it, but because it was a necessary thing whose job is now done. Now, when you come then to Jesus and the Gospels, take the Sabbath. Mm. Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So guess what? I'm going to drive a coach and horses through your Sabbath. Well, actually, as many, many Jewish teachers have been telling us for years, the point of the Sabbaths is that they are the weekly anticipation of the age to come, the coming age, that when the Shabbat comes, we are living in advance in the age to come. Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We are now in perpetual Sabbath. That's why in Luke 4, he says this scripture is fulfilled. It's the Jubilee, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, Mm. because he's here. And you don't put up signs saying this way to London in the middle of Whitehall, you know, because you're there already. And so for Jesus to abolish the Sabbath, and notice that in the rest of the New Testament, every time somebody summarizes the Ten Commandments, they miss out the Sabbath. Paul never mentions it. Mm. Um, It never mentions it as part of the commandments because it's fulfilled. And so if we elevate, oh, here are the Ten Commandments, and they were given by Moses, so they're either all valid for all time or they're not all valid for all time. No, sorry. The Sabbaths were this constant week-by-week promise of the age to come, and Jesus says it's here. And likewise, the incoming of the Gentiles. Um, That's something which in the Old Testament you're not allowed to fraternize with Gentiles in the way that Jesus does and then Paul does. But Jesus sees the time coming when, in fact, um, the nations will come. Many will come from east and west. There's going to be a great change. Mm. Mm. And so certain aspects of Torah, of the Jewish law, will be fulfilled in Jesus and therefore will no longer be relevant for the church. While other aspects, of course, because they're about what it Mm. means to be genuinely human, will be fulfilled and therefore will be relevant. Mm. So that's not a problem. (laughs) Dare I say. Great to have you on the show again, Tom. Until we meet again, thank you very much and thanks for all the questions that have been sent in (laughs) for this week's edition. Thanks so much for listening to today's edition of the programme. Just another reminder to save the date of Saturday the 9th of May 2020 when N.T. Wright will be joining us at the Unbelievable Conference in London and will be hosting a live episode of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Plus, uh, do make sure you subscribe to the newsletter for all the offers, updates and bonus content. That's at askntwright.com. And look out on next week's edition of the show for ways you can support the programme and receive in return a special new ebook from the show, Ask N.T. Wright Anything's 12 Tough Questions that he responds to. For now, thanks for listening and have a very happy Christmas. You've been listening to the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider. For more podcasts from Premier, visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts.